Hi, my friends. We really need your support to keep bringing these wonderful voices to you. If you find joy and solace in the podcast that we create, please consider clicking the button on the right side of the site. You know, that little button that says donate. Thank you for your kindness. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Here we go again. I'm very, very happy to be doing this, um, this conversation today. I am with Glenn Aparicio Perry, PhD. He's the author of the Nautilus award-winning book, Original Thinking, a Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature, and an educator, eco-psychologist, and political philosopher. The founder and past president of the SEED Institute, Parry is currently the director of the Grassroots Think Tank, the Circle for Original Thinking. Perry organized and participated in the groundbreaking Language of Spirit conferences between 1999 and 1911, moderated by Leroy Little Bear, that brought together Native American and Western scientists to engage in dialogue. I'm holding in my hands your latest book, Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again. So welcome, Glenn, and I think I'll dive right in and say that every single day I feel there is a... um, an augmentation, an increase of chaos in this country type. It doesn't make sense. So would you speak about that? Good question. Hey, thank you, Joanna, for having me on the show again. And, you know, I was on uh, with you, I think, three years ago about um, I was er it was early in the process of developing the book, Original Politics, which was a four-year project. I started writing it really before I even knew Donald Trump was going to be elected. Um, and uh, that, of course, shifted things. Um, the, you know, And I wrote the book, Original Politics, Making America Sacred Again, because I really wanted to find the sacred purpose of America. You know, and I found out that American ideals are founded upon Native American values, you know, liberty, justice, equality, inalienable rights. Those things that we tend to attribute to the founding fathers, they really learned most of them from experience living side by side with Native Americans. And it makes sense. I mean, they were living side by side with Native Americans for 150 years after the Mayflower Pilgrims came before they, you know, conceived of the idea to, to start a nation. And they, that very idea was given to them by Chief Kanastego, the Onondaga chief, who told them they should unite, like the Haudenosaunee conspiracy has united. And, be, you know, they were like the five fingers of one hand. They were strong together. Mm. So they, they inspired the very idea of uniting, and they inspired these core values uh, in the nation. But they also left out things. You know, obviously, they left out women. They left out people of color. This was not the way that Native societies operated at all in the, in the Haudenosaunee con- 
Confederacy, the women had enormous power in the political process. They nominated the male chief and had the right to remove him if he if he committed malfeasance of any kind. They would take off the deer antlers, the symbol of authority. So, you know, they left out things. They created a shadow. And what is happening now, to get to the core of your question, you know, um, we have, and really it even started with Barack Obama, not because of anything bad he did necessarily, but because he was the first African-American president, he kind of stirred up some some embers of uh, racism, let's face it. You know, I mean, I just put it plainly. Um, and then he was president for eight years, which led to um, a person like Donald Trump becoming the president of the United States. And, and Donald Trump has been a real catalyst for the revealing of the American shadow. And he's also been a very chaotic president, like you said, you know, and uh, uh, that chaos, the chaos gives us an opportunity um, because, well, here's, I'd like to tell a quick story, may I, of, of the, uh, yeah, it's it's a story that I use in the book because it's such an important story. It comes from the White Mountain Apache, mm -hmm. and it goes like this. And an old woman has been weaving a beautiful rug, and as she nears completion of the rug, she gets up to stir a soup that's on the fire. But when she gets up to stir the soup, her black dog, who's been sleeping in the corner, awakens and takes the thread with his mouth and pulls on it, pulls on it, and pulls on it until he unravels the entire rug. Mm -hmm. So the woman comes back from stirring the soup, and she sees where there was beauty and harmony. There's now chaos and disorder. But she doesn't, she doesn't panic. She's unfazed. She picks up a thread, stares in the, into the rug for a long time, until she reimagines an even more beautiful way to reweave the rug in beauty and harmony. Mm -hmm. That's really where we are now. Mm -hmm. We have this opportunity to see America as it really is. I mean, I don't know about you, Joanna, mm -hmm. but I did not. I was shocked when there were when there were when Charlottesville happened and there were Nazis or, or they sometimes called neo Nazis, but. You know, but but uh, chanting Jews will not replace us, you know, and I shouldn't have been shocked, really, because the, the KKK, ever since its revival in the 1920s, had merged um, racist feeling toward blacks with racist feeling toward Jews. So, you know, right. the two had been combined. Right. So. So it shouldn't have shocked me, but it gave me an opportunity to see America as it really is, to see a side that normally is buried and forgotten. You know. I want to ask you this. So, uh, yes, this beautiful carpet, which was always had some really nasty stains, uh, like, like many other places in the world, uh, this beautiful stained carpet gets unraveled by the dog. And uh, so do you, do you meet, do you know, do you believe that the right weavers are out there to take up the uh, reweaving of a more beautiful carpet? Well... Look at what has happened now with the current awakening of consciousness. Just, just a short time ago, about six weeks ago, we could say that 75% of white America believe that, that the policemen who, who enforced laws unjustly against minorities were just a few bad apples. That's almost reversed. So now it's, it's about 70% of America that understands that there is systemic racism fueling the way uh, police have traditionally enforced the law against minorities, particularly African, African Americans. That's an enormous shift. I mean, pollsters have never see, seen a shift like this before. Now, how, how permanent that shift is, I don't know. But... 
But I do believe that this has come about because Donald Trump is a catalyst for the revealing of the American shadow. He gives cover to to um, segments of the population that support him that do have some racist and sexist inclinations. Now, I want to be careful here. Not all supporters of Donald Trump are necessarily racist at all. In fact, a lot of people that voted for Donald Trump also voted for Barack Obama. And those those people were were probably part of a population that was totally dissatisfied with the way the political structure was, and they were looking for more hope. They were looking for something to change. And so they were willing to support Barack Obama, and then later they were willing to support Donald Trump, who said he was going to drain the swamp and and, uh, change things. So I don't want to paint too broad a brush, um, but there has been also on the part of, of Donald Trump an acceptance, or you might call it um, a usage of dog whistles to speak. It's a very beautiful term, dog whistles. So yeah. you can, without using overtly racist language, you can put out language that will make people feel that it's okay to embrace a certain racist view and support Donald Trump. So those two things have happened simultaneously. Yeah. I, I've been thinking since I, um, since I was living in a, with your book uh, for a few hours this morning. That's what I, that's what I, I do, I feel I plunge in the book and I, I sort of uh, live with it. And one, uh, one idea that came up was um, you, you would know how to, how to say this. There is a, there is a strange idea of ownership in America. Um, there is a, there seems to be a defensiveness of ownership and a, and a whole, and a whole moral, a whole ethic about ownership here, which de- totally depends on excluding others in a way that uh, I, I haven't seen it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, ownership and excluding others seem to be uh, each other's support system. Yes. Uh, well, in the book, I, I outlined uh, four stages, really, yes. which I see as kind of natural stages that happen. You know, they... Just like a, a tree begins in a seed and then goes to root and bud to fruit, there's a cycle. Then the then at the end of the cycle, the seed goes back into the earth and starts another tree. A seed is a symbol of wholeness. You know, it's a circle. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's a circle of full potential. Yes. When the United States is formed, it's formed as a birth a splitting from the mother country. I'm talking about the political nation. Yes, yes, it's yes. It's actually not the continent, which is you know has its own rich history and with with native peoples. But when the political nation is formed, it's an attempt to be unified under one idea. Um, and to some extent, the the founding fathers were following native beliefs of wholeness when they did that and liberty and equality but in other ways they were very naive about their belief they were they were they were trying to set up a um a political nation that had no no parties actually they didn't want political parties Mm. you know um and and that that was a you know they they didn't want political parties because they had, had observed how political parties would get you know, stuck in factionalism and they would, they would, they would, you know, fight against each other. Um, so 
they had good intentions there, but it was naive because the natural life force, just like in the Tao Te Ching, they talk about, you know, from the one comes the two comes the many things. Mm -hmm. That's also the arc of the book. So from the one came the two. And it took almost 100 years, but we got the two modern Democratic and Republican parties. But, and then now we're in a place of more fragmentation and division. I mean, and, and uh, we're, the country is really fragmented. And Donald Trump isn't a true Republican in the sense of what the Republican Party was before. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen. But if he were to lose, and indications are that he probably will lose, but you know, I don't want to underestimate him. Yeah. But if he were to lose, mm-hmm. then the Republican Party is going to have to restructure. But the, the one of the most important points of the book is that parties, they dance with each other. They're like dance partners on a dance floor with like women and men or any other complementary uh, players. And so they, you know, when you're on a dance floor, you look at what your partner's doing and you do something to, 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 you know, in different, you're doing something different. You're dancing together, but you're, but you're reacting to the movements of your partner. That's what happened with the Republican and Democratic parties because, and that's how they got to completely opposite places on the dance floor in the last 150 years. So the Republican Party of Lincoln, which was the party that was, you know, opposed slavery, has become the party of Trump. And the Democratic Party, which is the party that was pro-slavery, and and all the way up until the 1924 Democratic Convention, had a major player in the KKK that danced openly during the 1924 Democratic Convention. Um, and... You know, that party was the party that was more had more racist inclinations. But then everything started to shift and particularly the shift cemented in the 1960s when Lyndon Johnson passes civil rights reform. He gets more Republican votes than Democratic votes. But he knew when he did that, that that was going to hand over the South you know, for the next several generations. And that's exactly what happened. It didn't happen right away. But Richard Nixon and others in the Republican Party start to form a Southern strategy where they capture the South. And what happened is that the 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 base of the Democratic Party flees the Democratic Party and becomes the base of the Republican Party. So we have the complete do-si-do on the dance floor. Wow. And that's where we are today. And the only good news about this is you know that because it happened once, it could happen again, and everything is fluid. Okay, okay. Uh, because I think about, um, I think about civil war. And, uh, or I mean, at at least uh, uh, strong civil unrest. So what I feel like doing here with you, Glenn, it just came up for me intuitively is you've been studying now for, uh, what is it? Well, Well, decades, but I mean, 10 years, 15 years, to write your two books, Original Thinking and Original Politics. This is a very, very, I think this is a very dangerous moment of, uh, of transformation. What is it you would like people to know and to hear from you, from what you have studied in the last many years in your office in Albuquerque and speaking with your Native American philosopher, friends, and so on. Thank you for that question. That's, that's beautiful. And, 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 uh, and that gives me an opportunity to, to offer what really what I, mm. what I, my biggest message in this book, Original Politics, is to offer a message of healing and hope. 
um, probably one of the dearest elders to me, well, there's no probably, one of the dearest elders to me was Grandfather Leon Secatero. Mm -hmm. He was such a peaceful man with such a mellifluous, beautiful voice that was very soft. Mm -hmm. And Leon had the capacity to, if somebody was angry, he would just wait and he would allow the energy to dissipate. He never engaged in an angry conversation. That's what his own children claimed. <laughs> he never got angry at them. Yeah. And, uh, and Leon taught me that kind of patience. And I think that is, that's the kind of patience that's needed now. Um, it can seem like, you know, all is lost or we're, or we've really gone the wrong way. And in a certain way, it's not, I don't think that's accurate. Like, I really believe that, that, that Donald Trump was probably the president that we needed to have now. Now, be, bear with me why I say that. Yeah. <laughs> because, because, you know, um, in, a, in an odd kind of way, if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, we wouldn't have faced our shadow, perhaps. I mean, it, it would have seemed like we were. It would have seemed like we're being more inclusive. We would have been going from an African-American president to the first ever female president. But Hillary Clinton was a unique figure who was, you know, for 25 years involved in the mainstream. Donald Trump is the first president ever who did not have political experience or military experience. So he really shook everything up and made everyone feel uncomfortable and did cause a chaotic environment. And all of that is extremely dangerous. I compare him to a trickster figure. He really is a trickster figure, but I want to be careful in how I speak about this. He's not a trickster figure in, say, the Lakota tradition where, where the trickster consciously, consciously acts in a contrarian manner in order to shock a person out of their stuck consciousness and awaken them to a higher consciousness. Donald Trump is an unwitting trickster in my assessment. He doesn't quite know exactly what he's doing there, but nonetheless, he's still fulfilling that role and people still are awakening. I compare him to Loki, the Norse god Loki, mm -hmm. and also to Pan. You know, Pan was the Greek god, you know, that had the you know, the, that was had the horns of a goat and the legs and hindquarters of a goat, but had the chest of a man. Mm -hmm. And Pan was the licentious god that liked to go for sexual dalliances. And, you know, there's a lot of Trump in that. But then, but uh, Pan was also a nature god. And, you know, lust can be a good thing, you know, luster for life. You know? Yes, so yeah. that, that, um, that doesn't quite fit. Um, but... Loki is also is probably a, cl a closer fit because Loki brings the world to the brink of destruction before he pulls back. And that's what Donald Trump seems to do. And so it is a very dangerous time, but it also is a time of great opportunity to see and transform. And I can't say for certain what's going to happen, but it looks like we're going to avert a final journey into fascism, but it's still possible. We're on the precipice of that. One of the things I do in my book that will probably amuse you, you know, is I put side by side the symbols, the great seal of the United States and the fascist symbol that, that was on Italian uniforms during Mussolini's time. Yes. And, and, and I show how they're not that different. I mean, they both have an eagle, a strong symbol. Yes. And in the, in the fascist symbol, the, 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 there's tightly round, wound bundle with the, with an ax. The ax is to, the ax is to chop off anything that doesn't fit that tightly wound similarity of belief. And in the, in the Republic symbol, the symbol of the United States, we also have the eagle, um, and the eagle is holding in, it, in his left talon a bundle of arrows. And the difference here is that, plus the eagle has in his right talon an olive branch, so there's a little more diversity here. Right, but right. the difference is it's either unity through sameness or unity through diversity. 
And that's really the choice we have now. Unity through sameness is just goes to your question is, is how um, certain people want to exclude, exclude others to create unity. But what the United States really stands for in its deepest, in its deepest essence, one that wasn't even in full awareness for the founding fathers, but I would still say is its deepest essence is unity in diversity. Does that, does that make sense? Yes. 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 Deeply. Mm. So have, uh, have Americans uh, not uh, been present in school when the, when the Hitler... Uh, The Hitler story was told, and that uh, unity through sa sameness uh, didn't work. I mean, that was a very strong effort towards unity through sameness. I know it was a strong effort. I mean, it you know it completely disrupted, killed so many people in the world. But I do look at Germany now, and what they did because they went through that experience. They did confront their shadow more than has happened in the United States. Now, I'm not saying that we need to do that. In fact, I'm advocating that we see our shadow now yeah. yes, <laughs> and yes. don't have to go through that same experience. Oh, yeah. um, that's our opportunity. But uh, I can't, you know, I'm not wise enough to know exactly what's going to happen. Um, and... I only pray that we don't need to go through that kind of, of horror and killing people um, to discover our shadow. So how, could, how can we contribute in, in waking up uh, empathy and compassion in... Uh, seems like the people who go to these stadiums and rallies, um, they listen to language that, uh, that absolutely, um, that absolutely uh, is, in my view, devoid of uh, compassion and empathy, empathy and, uh, and diversity. Uh, how can we, and I'm talking about you and me and the people who listen to Future Primitive, how, how can we contribute to waking that back up in people who are, who are extremely wounded, just like we are wounded? Hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we have to do is have more compassion for those that believe any way they do, um, because they have a reason to. You know, Donald Trump uh, is not unique in being the first populist figure or somebody posing as a populist who has recognized a certain pain within the population and a certain wound. Yes. You touched upon it beautifully. So, you know, after 9-11, there was a wound in the American psyche that we had not yet recovered from. Uh -huh. And so Donald Trump took advantage of that. And that's why he, he singled out Muslims as being uh, the terrorists. Um, and... Uh, And that is exactly what the FBI did, too. You know, from 2001 until very recently, the FBI made, a, a, you know, made a concerted effort to root out Islamic terrorism. Um, and, and that was the way they proceeded until just about a year ago, uh, Christopher Wray admitted that the, that the incidents of white nationalist violence actually exceed any other form of terrorism. So it wasn't just amongst, you know, it wasn't just in Donald Trump's mind or Donald Trump's followers' mind, this wound, this idea that we had been mm -hmm. attacked by Islamic terrorists. Because we were, but, you know, what we did, it was, it was understandable that the that people had grief and sorrow and anger toward the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. But the way that we 
that's okay. I, I, I understand that response, but we also overreacted militarily really for, you know, two decades and killed half a million people, you know? And so that wound was still there, but we, but we, we, we have to get rebalanced because, you know, Muslims have been in America for a very long time and they're really here before many sects of Christianity. Um, the slaves about, uh, from different estimates between 15 and 30% of, of African-American slaves were Muslim. Um, so Muslim culture has been here in America for a very long time and they have the right to feel welcome in their own country. And that's one of the things we have to address. Well, there's at least two, two subjects I'd like to address with you. And um, one is I picked up uh, those uh, two words in your book, intimacy with nature. And uh, I'm sure you can expand on that and, uh, you know, kinship with... Um, Kinship with nature and, yes, uh, Thank na you. nature and politics. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you for bringing that up because one of the big differences, when I'm advocating for original politics, um, the distinction I'm making between original politics and typical politics in America or really pretty much throughout the world is I'm advocating for a form of politics that re that includes nature, huh. that includes nature in our decision-making processes. But I'm not saying that we're going to put a you know put a voting machine in front of a mountain or river <laughs> or something. But but we but what we but we we do need to remember how to speak with the river and speak with the mountain yeah. because they are speaking to us. Yeah. We do need to think for the whole, which is the way Native American politics was and still is conceived of in a lot of uh, in Native politics. Because in Europe, in European politics, in really ever since the time of Socrates, we redefined the greater good which used to mean the greater good of all beings to become, it became the greater good of only human beings. And that's really how most people define the human realm. They just talk about human actions as if our actions could be done, you know, without affecting nature. Of course they affect nature. So one of the main things that I'm trying to do in this book, and this is, this, this really came from the heart. I mean, the whole book I really want to credit the ancestors or whatever divine beings came through to give me an outline for it um, nearly four years ago because the outline only became increasingly relevant over time, never decreasingly relevant. Um, and I knew that at the end of the book, I needed to reframe politics to include love of nature, what's E.O. Wilson called biophilia. Because it's my belief that if we remember how to love nature, then we can remember how to love each other. And what distinguishes nature from human activities normally for me is that nature, nature operates more like an orchestra. It's, an, it's a polysymphonic uh, uh, act where everything is happening at the same time. And human beings, ever since the Newtonian physics, have tried to have tried to uh, figure out what is a cause and what's an effect. And and really, I think that's a little bit of an illusion, which Western science is waking up to. That's why we have quantum theory and a, and, and chaos theory. And you mentioned chaos early in this conversation. Well, that's the thing. Chaos theory understands that the action of one little butterfly over here affects everything in the world. And so if you think like that, then you can begin to reframe even the actions of politicians that irritate you or even disgust you and realize that they're part of the whole. 
you know, and one of the things I say at the end of the book, and I, I'd love to read a little bit of it if you don't mind, but, you know, is, is Donald Trump is us, you know, Nancy, Mitch McConnell is us, Nancy Pelosi is us, you know, all our politicians ultimately are a reflection of us. So if we, when we criticize politicians, we have to be very careful to realize that, you know, we might be criticizing them because of something in us that's unhappy, you know? And so it's very hard to thing to do. And I'm not saying I do it or, at all, all the time, because Donald Trump very much irritates me. You know, or something. But, 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 but he is part of us. He's part of us. And so if we, if we can, we have to, we literally just as Jesus counseled, you know, we have to learn how to love our enemies. That doesn't mean we have to agree with their policies or their beliefs, but we have to, if we adopt a kind of loving posture, then it's possible we might transform them. Um, you know, I, that's kind of the, do you mind if I read something for the end or if it's not, it's no, up to no, you. Read, it's your show. read on Glenn, read on. Uh, I, I had, uh, <laughs> One more um, question for you, so let's do that. Let's do that first. Let's then, do sure. that first, and then. Uh, uh, so, yesterday or the day before, I was thinking about um, this whole um, COVID, uh, which incidentally I believe is true. A lot of people I know don't, but um, and. Uh, and I was thinking about uh, uh, religion in this country, and I was thinking about Armageddon, you know, how these things might, uh, might complement each other, the, nar the Armageddon narrative and, uh, and the COVID killing people. So... Just wanted to. Um, I don't want to lock it into that thought, but I'd like you to speak a little bit about religion in this country. Wow. Um, well, you know what you evoke in me now is, and there, there was somebody who contacted me just just recently who who loved my first book. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> who, said, yeah, yeah. who was a, an eco-psychologist or at least I think so um, and 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 tried to tried to tell me that I that I was that I wasn't seeing that the world is really run by a cabal and that and, and that COVID-19 is really a pandemic <laughs> and that it's not it's not real and you know and that yeah. it's just the same as a flu and, yeah. and and all that kind of thing so it just it just it just um, maybe well I already was aware but I I knew that there's some risk in writing anything any book that has uh, politic politics as a subject because people do take very strong positions one way or the other and just like you said yeah there's there's people that are they can be very intelligent but they come to certain beliefs that I'm not sure how they arrived at that but you know um, you know religion is a very a very complex subject. I mean, in the sense of its original meaning, religio, yeah. reconnecting with spirit is a very, very beautiful thing. And I think that human beings who who believe that their that their ego, that their ego is everything, are missing out on an enormous depth of understanding. So often, uh, people who are religious they do realize that there's something beyond themselves that they need to to pray to or become open to, and that could be a very beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, religion has sometimes been co-opted by certain religious leaders who 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 have a particular agenda, um, and and and. Uh, you know, for them, religion may be a business. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of Lenny Bruce, the comic, you know, when yeah. I'm talking to you now, yeah. Who, yeah. who pointed this out so well a long time ago, you know, I mean, the, you know, we have televangelists who make a lot of money, you know, or whatever. I mean, that's not 
that's not you know something that Jesus was talking about. Um, so there's there's a there you there is a possibility of corruption, but I don't think we should ever be um, castigating people who are trying to find religion because if they're trying to find spirit and heart and love bless them (laughs) so um you know and as for your question about armageddon or you know or or you know i do i do i I don't consider i'm not a biblical scholar i've read more around the edges of the bible i've read like the aquarian gospel of jesus the christ and the and the gospel of thomas and whatnot more than the bible itself because it's it's my weakness but i'll tell you but i think that Definitely, as I say in original politics, the meaning of the word apocalypse originally meant an unveiling or revelation. So I think that's really what is happening now. Uh And it doesn't necessarily have to be a war, but we are at the precipice of both civil war and possibly world war. So we do have to tread carefully. Okay. Okay. Um. Read on, Glenn. This is uh, this has been uh, uh, very pleasurable for me, and um, so uh, please give our uh, give our listeners a, a deep taste of your book. Thank you, thank you. Um, this is from near the end of the book. And this is a section that actually I originally was going to put this in the introduction, but I realized it needed to come at the end later. Mm-hmm. And this, the heading is called We Are All One. Yes. When the East Indian sage Ramana Maharshi was asked, how should we treat others? He replied, there are no others. This is on the deepest level true. What we see as other is only a projection of what we have rejected in ourselves. We may feel repelled by certain ideas and perspectives, but we are unwittingly dancing with them as shadow dances with light, always remaining connected. We suffer to the extent that our thoughts and perspectives feel separate from others and from nature, and we are healed to the extent we perceive them as emanating from the same source. The wide variation of political views acted out on the stage of life are ultimately different expressions of one whole. They mimic the enormous biodiversity of life here on Earth. Everything on Earth, from the earthworm to the eagle, mushroom, slug, flapping fish, or sunflower, are all nourished by the same sun, atmosphere, waters, and soil. People with different political views may seem different or act different, but your thoughts and theirs emanate from the same well of consciousness. There is far more that connects us than separates us. It is important to always keep that in mind. Once we recognize the truth of how we are all connected, it becomes easier to stand back and look again at people with whom we disagree on one thing or another, including politics. The etymology of the word respect is to look again. It is a simple concept. If our first impulse is to judge, dismiss, or denigrate the other individual, look again. Everywhere we look is the face of our teacher. We can learn from everyone, even if the only thing we learn is what is a bad example. Respect is ultimately not about judging. To respect someone is to make an effort to understand them, to realize they too are sacred and equal part of creation. Viva la différence, as the French say, we are Mm -hmm. all in the dance of life together. Moreover, the people who irritate us the most can be our greatest teachers. This includes any politician you might find irritating. If you are a laissez-faire conservative who believes in the authority of free markets, you might be irritated by Senator Sanders or Representative Ocasio-Cortez. But look again. They were elected at this time for a reason. The same is true for Donald Trump. And so if he or any other politician irritates you, 
consider it an opportunity to explore. What is it about him or her that irritates you? Is it something within you that you believe you have rejected only to project upon another? Psychological projection occurs whenever we are uncomfortable seeing in another an aspect of ourselves we think we have overcome, but really have not. If we have totally overcome a fault within ourselves, the other person would not bother us. We would maintain poise and equanimity. This is, of course, very hard to do. Everyone I know has some rough edges yet to be polished. I know I do. I would be dishonest if I said that Donald Trump does not irritate me on occasion. Okay, frequently. But some of what I see as his negative characteristics, vanity, inflated sense of self-importance or insecurity, are things I have struggled with as a fellow human being. If I had completely overcome these characteristics, I would not be bothered by Trump. He may or may not be an extreme example of these faults. In a way, it does not matter. I need to stand back and look at the man again. And perhaps that's enough to, to read, but I'll just skip ahead to say this. On a mystical level, Ramana Maharshi is correct. There are no others. Donald Trump is us. Mitch McConnell is us. Nancy Pelosi is us. All our elect officials are reflections of us. We, the people, voted them in. They have a role to play in the bigger picture, and so do we. You know, um, it's... I did end the book. I don't know how much time we have left, but, you know, I did end the book with the 60s, which it occurs might be of special interest to you since you had such a such an enormously intimate peek into the heart of the 1960s. Yes. You, you know, it, so it, I, uh, I respect your, um, the words you just read, uh, but uh, I do not uh, agree with that perspective. I wouldn't add the words at all because I definitely agree with some of that perspective. <laughs> but when, uh, when people are consciously or unconsciously at those levels hurting people in an extremely deep and horrible way and continued day after day and I'm speaking about Donald Trump and uh, and his gang I cannot j just endorse that that's a part of me that's not healed uh, no that's uh, that's a cancer like, that's an intruder to me and the intruder has to go because it hurts. It hurts. It destroys. Yeah. That's all I want yeah. to say. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from. You know, uh, um, there's, there's a lot of actions that have taken place in the Trump administration that are incredibly hurtful and, and uh, uh, they're, they're beyond disruptive. You know, and some of those really offend me on the deepest level also, you know, uh, locking children up in cages, um, um, dehumanizing people of color. Um, these are uh, uh, dehumanizing immigrants, dehumanizing um, attempting anyone. to recla reclassify people who are seeking asylum as illegal when mm -hmm. that is not really the accurate uh, uh, description. Yes. There are many, many actions that are, that are deeply offensive. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm not suggesting at all that one, that one embraces uh, policies or actions of other people. What I'm saying, you know, if you disagree with them, you disagree with them. Um, but what I'm saying is that all of us are in this together. You know, all the people, mm -hmm. all the plants, all the animals, mm -hmm. all the light, the light, the air, the water, the earth. Yes. Politicians who come into power and represent the worst of America, which you might believe for, for Mr. Trump, are still, are still part of us. 
So we need to see that. We need to see that, that and, and accept that they're part of us. And that gives us an opportunity to change. But we don't have to hate them because, because they hate people, because that just perpetuates a cycle of violence. Um, we have to have, you know, kindness and compassion for people who are, who are um, uh, misguided. That's what the Dalai Lama would say is an opportunity to practice warm-heartedness when somebody is violent or disruptive, you know. Um, and ultimately, we have to see that they are part of the whole. See, this is, this is, this is all I'm offering here. I'm, I, I, I'm not saying to, to anybody that, you know, that uh, uh, go out and, and, and agree with uh, a lot of Donald Trump's policies. I, I However, that. it's possible to agree with some of them. And, you, you know, I, mean, I agreed when he, when he uh, did prison reform. That was actually a good thing. You know, so there are some good things that can happen to do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. Um, ex- I'm not talking black or white or excluding, but I'm sim- simply saying that uh, when many of your actions are reactions, that's the best way I could put it. Um, reactions hurt people. Actions can be thought out and uh, yes. and useful. Yes. Yes. Well, what I what I said in the book is, you know, yeah, Donald Trump is also probably genuinely hurt by all the negativity thrown at him. See, the only way he knows how to deal with it is to strike back. And I, I think, I even say that I think he's saddled by his own name. His own name is Trump. So he has this idea that whenever somebody strikes out at him, he has to be the one who trumps. And and so he's incapable of letting go. He's incapable of letting criticism go. This is not good leadership. I'm not saying it's good leadership. It's very much bad leadership. But but this this is what I see happening for him. And... Even though I cannot disagree more with his with his policies toward the ecology, his policies toward immigrants, his uh, and refugees, um, and I think that goes against the core of what America could be, its greatest right. potential. Um, the the way to defeat Mr. Trump is not to hate him back, because that just adds fuel to his fire and his and his supporters who th- actually truly feel that he's unfairly criticized. They, they, make, they make him out to be a martyr figure because they think the media is out to get him all the time. And, of course, you know, I think you and I look at it and see, well, he's doing all these things that the media is just reporting on, but that's the way that they think. They think that he's just being unfairly criticized. So in a way... Probably the best thing is not to add fuel to that fire and to see America as it really is and to build um, build strategies of government that are inclusive, that are loving, that are kind. Um, and we have an, you know, we have an unusual opportunity to to work on ourselves to even be loving and kind and compassionate toward Mr. Trump. <laughs> so that's that's where we could start. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, thank yes. you. So so Glenn, uh, would you like to close with uh, some words about the 60s? Oh sure. Yes. Uh, uh, the the uh, Okay. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a section, I mean, this is about a five minute reading. Do I have time for that? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Um, this is, this is, this, I I had previously talked about the sixties being a divisive time in our nation's history, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam war, uh, 
Okay. Or actually, I'm going to read some of that because you'll love that. Okay. okay. So it, okay. it's called "End in the End, Love Is All You Need," which, of course, is borrowing from two Beatles songs. Right. The 1960s was another divisive time in our nation's history—a time of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, and also a time when something else was stirring the psychedelic summer of love in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco and the Woodstock Festival in upstate New York. I was unaware of Woodstock when it happened. I was only 14 years old at the time and away on a family vacation in Europe. But I ended up living at Woodstock less than a decade later and going into the music business. One of the pivotal events of the 1960s was the March on Selma that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965. Less than 50 years later, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act while Barack Obama was our president. Chief Justice Roberts, in announcing his decision, justified it by saying, our country has changed. He was not alone. Many felt we were living in a post-racial age, demonstrated by our newly elected black president. Not many saw the backlash that was already happening, a backlash that was at least partly responsible for the rise of Trump. The 60s were a tumultuous time between the races not unlike today. The politics of the time were also divisive. President Nixon came under threat of impeachment and was eventually forced to resign. There was much chaos and strife at the time, but there was also the seeding of something hopeful, a consciousness of peace and love. The 50th anniversary of Woodstock is now in the rearview mirror. The Woodstock generation is growing old. But something special was born then that never died. There was a certain freeing of the soul. The young men grew their hair long. The hippies returned to the land, living in communes. Some of the most famous communes ended up locating in New Mexico. The Hog Farm, New Buffalo, and the Llama Foundation among them. Later, when I myself moved to New Mexico, I wondered why there were so many communes here, a place where Native American culture is still strong. Was that a coincidence? Many Native Americans noticed that the hippies seemed to be imitating them, growing their hair long and living off the land. I don't believe it was a coincidence or a conscious imitation. It was something else. I think the hippies were tuning into the spirit of the land, even if they were not fully conscious of it. I believe it heralded the re-emergence of ancestral spirits, that it marked the beginning of a turtle island renaissance. It was a nascent attempt to live in peace and harmony with each other and the land. It was the spirit of original politics knocking, waiting to be let back mm -hmm. in. You know, so I go on to talk about Robert uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther mm -hmm. King, mm -hmm. you know, and how pivotal they were in the 1960s movement. And I, 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 I quote the almost the entirety of Robert Kennedy's speech that he made the night that, that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And in that speech, he called for love and compassion. He called for a reaction not a violent reaction to what had occurred. And he made that speech in Indianapolis, Indiana. And that was the only major city in America that did not have riots happen after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Wow. So it worked. It worked. Um, and, you know, it is possible for people to get to that place. And I think that today... What's happening now is really, it, it's a reprisal of the 1960s, but on a higher level of integration. We, yes. see, we see more people marching in the streets that are of greater diversity and greater peace. There's less rioting. Sometimes the media plays up the rioting that occurs, but there's much less rioting. It's much more peaceful uh, protests that are happening, and consciousness is shifting it's shifting faster. But the seed was planted in the 60s, and you were one of the most amazing people who were helping to plant that seed, so thank you. Um, I hear you. Well, Glenn, thank you very much for uh, being here with us today, with me today. I will continue to read your book. 
And、um, I hope we see each other soon. We both live in New Mexico. Yes. All right. Yes, thank you so much. Much love and blessings to you. Oh, yeah, yeah definitely.、Thank、much、you. love to you. Okay. Take care. <laughs>